But during that time, I met my future wife, who is Mongolian, and uh, she wanted to go back to home. I said, hey, what if I go with you to Mongolia? Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Workshop. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. I co-founded Anvil, the platform for building full-stack web apps with nothing but Python, and that means I meet a lot of interesting people who use it. So I'm recording conversations with them and putting them on the internet. For this episode, I talked to Robert Ritz, a Renaissance man who has moved to Mongolia, started a business school, taught data science, built speech recognition models, and, well, I'll let him tell the rest. Well, it kind of got started when I was in university. Um, I was studying political science, and that was what I thought was, um, you know, my dream job. And uh, I got, I graduated uh, from university, and then uh, started working in uh, Congress in the U.S. House of Representatives for a little under a year. Um, it was my dream job. It was what I had expected and what I thought it would be, and it was, you know, all sunshine and rainbows, and it was great. And then I realized about seven months in that I really didn't like it um, for, <laughs> for various reasons, but mostly because of, you know, it's politics, right? And, you know, who would have thought it would be so messy? And, uh, and so I, I kind of, I basically quit, uh, moved back to, I was living in Washington, D.C. I moved back to, to Dallas where I went to school in Texas. And then I got a job uh, at an IT outsourcing company, actually, of all places, uh, called CSC. And now it's called DXC Technologies. But um, they, uh, I got the job there because I, was, I worked in the IT um, uh, department of my university. And we managed you know, infrastructure for 30,000 students or something like that at the university. So I, was, I had some really interesting experience doing that. Um, while I was studying political science. So it was this interesting social science and technology thing I was interested in. Um, I really didn't like my job at CSE, but it paid pretty well. Um, I mean, it, I got a lot of exposure to in, enterprise infrastructure and technology and systems, um, but I really wanted to change. Um, and so I ended up finding um, a job uh, as a consultant, actually, as a management consultant in Dallas. Um, and then from there, I actually really merged the two things, which is social science and technology. And I was um, advising clients uh, in a management consulting role, which is generally very people focused. But then I was doing it uh -huh. for I IT departments um, for our clients. So it was kind of this combination of people and technology. And it worked. I really enjoyed the job. But during that time, I met my future wife, um, Byra, who uh, is Mongolian. And uh, she had lived in the U.S. for quite some time. She had finished her um, her education. I we started dating, and then we both kind of realized. Well, she realized first that she wanted to go back to home, and uh, and try to help her country, and you know do do what she could to take what she's learned and and go back and and help out. I was at this point a little bit let's say, disillusioned with the corporate world. Um, I, I had already seen the government. Management consulting will do that to you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And um, and I, I think I was just ready to try something new and do something unusual. Now, this is 2012, actually, when this happened. Um, and then fast forward to 2013, I said, hey, what if I go to, with you to Mongolia? And we started um, a business school. And, uh, and then that's been working out extremely well. Um, and we're the only university now in Mongolia that teaches all in English. 
which is a pretty uh, pretty unusual thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great. And 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 around 2000, I guess 17 or so, I got really interested in data science because um, I was like, oh, hey, you can do all the stuff I used to do in Excel, and I used to you know writing macros and things like that. Now I can do that with Python, and you know 10% of the time with so much more data. And the tools had gotten so much better, and and it became uh, really quite quite great. So uh, so that's what I do now. Um, I I teach. Um, so hang on, and you t- teach at this Mongolian campus outpost subsidiary of Latorno University, which is a university that's based in Texas. Yeah, so we are. They're our partner. We're not part of that American university. We are. We are an independent university here in Mongolia. But, um, but yes, we do have a really close partnership with them. And in fact, right next door to me right now, we have two visiting professors from that school. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of okay. How it how it works, and it works quite well. Um, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of people in the developing world, students, they want to study abroad. They want to study, you know, in Europe or the United States or Canada. Um, and so we um, we do give them that option, uh, but we try the best we can to give them that uh, Western education here so they don't have to leave. So this is a whole university that exists because your now wife wanted to go home, you wanted to go with. I mean, that's a pretty incredible story. Like, how did you start a university? How big is it now? I would want to know all about this. <laughs> yeah, so so we didn't start from scratch. Um, we started, we made a school of a university that already existed in Mongolia that we had a relationship with. And then we created a new school, which is called Latu Mongolia. And that, that school is a business school, right? Um, and we, the, the, the university, the larger university has something like a thousand students. And we got started with five students uh, in 2013. Um, and then now we have something like 120 students con- uh, currently enrolled and then many graduates even today. Um, and so we've grown quite a lot. Um, and uh, how, mm-hmm. how long is the course there? And you know, how many staff do you have now? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's a four-year university. They finish 12 years of uh, general education and then they go to four years for undergraduate. Um, and then they study business. Uh, we have let's see, um, uh, six full-time faculty, uh, several staff uh, for all those students. And then we are, as we grow, we're actually taking up more and more space um, at the university. <laughs> so we keep growing and expanding. Um, so it's it's kind of funny now. We're, we're in the middle of a city, so it's a little unusual for a university. Um, so we're like in these like kind of office tower looking things, actually. Um, and Knowing enough uh, friends who went to universities in London, that doesn't seem unusual for me but i guess if you're uh, if you're used to i guess dallas must be spread out a long way a long way oh yeah i mean if i if i was at my school which is the university of north texas if we i would have to walk 20 minutes to get across campus i mean there's just like wide open spaces and lots of buildings and stuff like that so it's uh it's quite a bit different for me whereas ulaanbaatar is actually quite dense and urban then by contrast yeah so that's a really good uh segue i think into mongolia which is that Things are so different than here than what I was used to or what I was uh, what I thought was normal. Um, so Mongolia is a country of three million people only, um, and the three millionth person was born just uh, just like two years ago. Um, the city, though Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital, um, has 1.6 million people. 
So the city has more than 50% of the population of the whole country. And the city is the size of a small, small city in, you know, in Europe. Um, and so it is quite dense in the center of the city, which is where we are. And the rest of the country, I mean, Mongolia is pretty huge for 3 million people. Like, <laughs> ultra concentration in the center, really, really spread out everywhere else. The population density is two people per square kilometer. That's the density of the whole country. And even that is not an accurate representation because more than half of them are in this postage stamp <laughs> in the center. Wow. Exactly. So, yeah, that's actually a great point. Um, there are more um, There are more camels than people. Um, they're basically, okay, so there's also on top of that, there are more than almost 70 million domesticated herd animals, like sheep, goats, cows, and horses and camels. Uh, so, you know, 3 million people, 70 million animals. Right. <laughs> okay. So like, what, what's the dominant industry? Like, you know, how does this come about? What do people do? What does the rest of Ulaanbaatar do? Oh, that's a good question. So... Uh, mining is the main industry of the country, um, and it really got started back in 2000, I guess 10, 2011. Um, Mongolia has one of the largest deposits of copper um, and, and coal, actually. Um, so the, that's the main industry, and it's the main kind of uh, thing that keeps the economy going. Um, the second one, though, is actually cashmere. So if you have a cashmere coat or if you have a cashmere sweater or something, Probably most of the cashmere for that came from Mongolia. Um, some one of, of those 70 million herd animals. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so those are the two, mainly the two big industries. But um, we here actually really hope that we can help diversify that. And that's one of the things that we try to do at, this, at the school because it is a business school. We try and encourage people to do something else because um, those two things are not uh, sustainable for the economy long term. Just digging into that a little bit deeper. Uh if the big industries are mining and farming, both of which really kind of naturally gravitate to the boondocks out of town, what what is it that's ultra concentrated more than half of this population into such a tiny space? What's what's the what's the gravitational factor? Oh, that's it. Okay, so this is, I have to explain a little bit more about, uh, I guess, the history just a bit. So prior to history 1990, culture, hit us with it. Yeah, so prior to 1990 and 1991, uh, Mongolia was a communist country. It wasn't part of the Soviet Union, but it was uh, maybe a satellite state, if you will. Um, there was a significant Russian presence. There was, um, you know, MiG wings and armor um, uh, units here. And it was kind of the buffer zone between Russia and China during that period. Russia in 1921 um, kind of helped Mongolia kick the Chinese out uh, and, and basically became the big brother from that point. So after the fall of communism in 1991, Mongolia basically overnight decided, I mean, I, literally within just a few days, actually, decided to switch from communism to democracy. Now, this was a big one because uh, this was a nonviolent revolution. There was no fire. There was no gunfire. There was nothing like they basically just told the Russians, you got to get up and go. Um, and they deported all of them within a few days. Um, then the Mongolian government met and they said, OK, well, we have to make, you know, a democracy, like how do we do this? We've never done this before. 
And so they they threw together a constitution, which is actually pretty good. Um, and they had a, a quite a quite a bit of help from the West, which is great. And um, they decided to become a democracy. Well, one of the things that they did in the constitution was they allowed people freedom of movement in the country. Because prior to this, you you couldn't move if you wanted to. You had to get permission to move between states or or areas. The government had to approve it. So now you have this sudden freedom where you can basically move wherever you want. And on top of that, the government guarantees you a plot of land uh, that you can own as a, for your residence um, as a family or even as a person. So is this on an ongoing basis or was this just for a brief window in the 90s? It, it's still going on today. So <laughs> so you can only get it once uh, per person. But this the idea is that you own this land and the government essentially gives it to you. I and mean, there's a registration fee, but it's essentially given to you. So what happened was at first, not I don't think not too much happened. If you look at the internal migration data, um, it was, you know, pretty much. The economy became very depressed, like a lot of former Soviet countries um, in the 90s, um, but then things got better. However, there's this phenomenon in Mongolia called Zult, uh, D-Z-U-D, Zult. And it is where it's, it's basically um, a very severe winter where a significant number of animals in the country die. So this is, um, you know, during prior to maybe 2010 or so. Uh, almost half of the people in Mongolia were nomadic herders. So when a zold happens and all of your animals die, there used to be a system where the government would kind of redistribute animals so that uh, you would be able to have a herd and you could you could have a livelihood and all that. But then in, in a market economy, that safety net didn't exist and they didn't have an insurance system or anything developed back then. So if all of your animals die or most of your animals die, what are you supposed to do, right? So a lot of them, what they would do is they would sell their animals or whatever was left and move to the city because that's the only place that is the only urban center of the country, really. And it's the place where they can actually find jobs. Another phenomenon in Mongolia is where um, people just decide that herding is hard because it, it is. It's really hard. Um, and they just decide to to stop and they sell all their animals or they want to have a better education for their children, um, or you know maybe they just want to have electricity <laughs> um, or something like that. So all those things combined, and there was this actually a series of zolts over two decades um, that caused this uh, this urban uh, urban center to like swell from only about six hundred thousand people to one point six million people in you know twenty twenty five years about that. So was is this about the normal rate of these really harsh winters, or was this like a, an an unusual spike coming at the worst possible time? That's a really good question. So th this is something I, I you know I work with with my with my data research as well. So um, it is it, it's both I think. Um, so there is uh, some evidence to show that of course climate change is affecting this, and that this is one of the reactions, but. Um, I think a better um, sort of simpler explanation is that along with the market reforms in 1990, they no longer had a, a cap on the number of animals people could own. So the number of animals at the same time in 1990 swelled from around 21 million to 50 million in, in like 15 years. So 
a lot of more animals were created in a very short period of time. And when a, a severe winter happened, in many cases, um, what I believe, and I think some others believe, is that there wasn't enough grass, there wasn't enough pasture for these animals to... to... Uh, so you create this more fragile system that just can't weather the shocks like the old system used to. Exactly. And then combine that with other factors, like, for example, uh, herders used to move uh, five times a year uh, to new pastures, and now they may only move two or three times because uh, they may have access to um, electricity uh, from a pole, or they may have uh, satellite TV from using solar panels, uh, or it may be close to a city where their kids go to school. So they want to, they don't want to move as much, which which means they don't see new pasture as often. So there's like a lot of factors that contributed to this. Um, and a lot of them seem to be the same factors in a slightly different clothing to what's pushed the rest of the world into urbanization, but with a distinctly Mongolian twist. Absolutely, definitely. <laughs> Speaking of distinctly Mongolian twists, like, can you give us a flavor of, I mean, what it's like living there, you know, what's the language like? What's the culture like? Uh, how does it compare to the neighboring countries? So Mongolia is a really interesting country. When I first moved here, I did a lot of research when I moved here, and that's kind of what I do. Um, my wife was making fun of me, but I said, oh, you know, there's... Really? An academic doing research? <laughs> Never. Right? So uh, I researched it a lot, and I was like, okay, so it's, you know, it's Soviet, but it's Asian. And I was like, okay, I wonder how that's going to play out. I really expected an Asian culture when I moved here, and I it's really not like that. I, I've been to other East Asian countries and um, and the culture here is very much a mix of East and West. Um, when you, if you walk down the street and if you're just uh, trying, you know, social norms and things like that are not much different than if you were in, in Europe or the United States. Um, if you are talking about the language, that is quite a bit different. Um, Mongolian is a tough language, most people agree, but I think it's tough not because a lot of people say it's just innately tough. It's a difficult language, but I don't, for me, it's not quite like that. I think it's tough because there's not a lot of exposure to it. There's not a lot of uh, resources about it. So, um, you know, Spanish, I don't think is particularly easy. Um, and, and I learned it for many years because I lived in Texas, but uh, there's so many resources. It's in common culture. It's in popular culture. So I think it's just in people's minds. Mongolian is an Altaic language, um, which is... What does uh, that mean? What... Which yeah. ones is it related to? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat related to Turkish, actually, um, but distantly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more related to Central Asian languages. Uh, so go you know, west to like Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan. Um, those are, it's more related to those. But it's called an Altaic language because it's named after the Altai mountain range, which is in Western Mongolia. And it's a family of languages that is unique to that area. And it hasn't mixed much with other languages. So it's quite um, distinct. It's not in any way related to Russian. It's not related to Chinese. It's not related to Japanese or, or even Korean. Um, so it is quite unique. So it's this uh, interesting, very different language to all of its neighbors that hasn't received the kind of attention that many other languages have. But uh, you've been working on changing that. And one of the projects we've seen you posting about in the Anvil forums is this research for like bringing speech recognition to Mongolian. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? Like, what's the project? How are you doing? 
Sure. Um, so this project is pretty interesting because um, one of the things I really like to do in Mongolia is help raise um, kind of the standard or the status of technology and data products in the country. Um, and speech recognition is a big part of that. So voice, you know, voice, uh, voice commands, you know, voice assistance, voice is a big thing in recent years. Um, I do some consulting work for some international NGOs, and one of the projects that came around was uh, to actually support um, media organizations um, through uh, speech recognition or automated speech recognition. Go on. Speech to text, in other words. And the way that that works is, you know, um, one of the really one of the really useful things that you'll see on on the internet is that you have subtitles <laughs> or you have uh, you can have searchable transcripts uh, and those kinds of things. And that uh, that's great, but it requires a technology product to actually make those. Uh, it's unrealistic to expect companies or, or businesses or media organizations to make those transcripts by hand. It, it takes too much time and it's too much work. So we wanted to uh, develop a, an open data set. Uh, that of, of really good quality audio data that's combined with uh, accurate transcripts that could be used to train um, a deep learning model uh, to for uh, speech recognition in Mongolian. Um, the, the, the real challenge it actually is to get not to get the audio itself. Uh, we found that you know, a lot of places were willing to donate their audio. Um, I've talked to a lot of uh, local podcasts. Podcasts have become really popular here, and they're more than happy for us to use their audio. Um, the issue is, is then once we get that audio, we have to have good transcriptions. Uh, because once you get those transcripts, then you can actually do a supervised learning uh, model, uh, which is what kind of what you got to do for machine learning um, to create uh, a speech recognition model. What I used Anvil for, which is amazing, I wish I might add, is that uh, you know you have to basically play audio and then type in what the text is, and you do that relatively on a sentence by sentence basis. So I built a web app um, that's like pretty simple, uh, but it's nice and mobile responsive and it works really, really well, that pulls in audio, uh, allows users to type in in Cyrillic um, what the audio says and then submit it, um, and also validate that other users are transcribing the audio correctly, and then they get paid um, on a per uh, task basis based on the length of the audio. Um, and it's, you know, it's got users and, and it keeps track of the, of the payments and, and all of that stuff. And it was a, so like a, a full mechanical Turk type system, basically mechanical Turk. And I, and I, and I wanted to build it, but you know, the thing about the rest of the world is that it doesn't, the, the most, most countries don't speak English and most of these Western big tech companies really don't support multilingual well. And so I wanted to do it because I knew I could do it really quickly with Anvil and I wanted to do it in a way that made it really uh, simple for people um, and also um, that any of our partners could brand and help us with. So what's progress on that project? How far have you got and what's the next step? So it's kind of interesting because uh, I'm a little disappointed to say that the project kind of uh, is redirecting because last week, uh, Google announced that they just released a speech recognition model for Mongolian. And it's the very first 
big tech company to do this for the Mongolian language. And I'm, I'm happy they did it. I'm disappointed because I don't think we're going to get to use this app now. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, th there is an issue, which is that, um, you know, Google and, and Microsoft and, and IBM, they're not necessarily interested in doing things the right way in an open way. You know, they're, they're businesses, right? They want to make money. And we were really trying to make an open data set that all could use so that it was a really high quality data set um, that, that any business or organization could use to help leverage uh, speech technology. Um, and so the, the initial tests show an error rate of about 30%, which is not very good. Uh, but I'm actually working on setting up a test right now um, to see how good it is. So, you know, who knows, it may not be good enough and we may have to do it anyways, but so it's kind of, uh, we may be pivoting the project now to focus in a different area of implementation rather than data collection. So what would, I mean, what does implementation of a speech recognition model even look like? I mean, I imagine you can't just feed like raw waveform data to a neural network. Yeah, that's a great question. So the way it works is, uh, for these speech recognition models is, um, you actually do part, or you pass in normally an MP3 or WAV file, it doesn't really matter. And then what you do is you convert the waveform to a spectrograph. And you're essentially what you're doing is you're converting a wave to a 2D image. So it'll look like um, if you've ever seen like colored sonar maps, like on, on movies with submarines, it kind of looks like that, um, where you have uh, the y-axis is is um, the you know amplitude like you would normally have, and the x-axis is time. But instead of a wave, it's color. Um, and the way that that works is you're basically converting something from audio to an image, and then that image gets converted to numbers. So each pixel gets converted to an RGB value, and then that gets fed into the neural network, which actually does the training. So you're saying that we already have these great image processing neural networks. So we just turn the audio into a spectrograph and feed it to the network that way? Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's actually pretty much um, the way it worked. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Amazing. There, Baidu was one of the, um, one of the uh, pioneers of this, but pretty much everyone does it now. Um, and it, it's pretty standard on, on, on how this is done. And everyone um, kind of does that. Now, there was an older way to do it, which is, called, which is a phoneme-based system. And a phoneme is basically a sound in a language. So like an, on, in. So it's a combination of, of letters or maybe sometimes only one. Um, mm -hmm. And then you would actually train uh, a system on a more traditional machine learning, not a deep learning system uh, necessarily to recognize these phonemes, and then it would connect the phonemes together. Um, that is, it works quite well, especially if you have a small data set, um, but these new fancy end-to-end -end neural networks are really all the rage, and they, and they actually do work better if you get enough data. The tricky thing about these neural networks is, though, they're end-to-end models. So you put in audio in one end, and on the other end, it outputs letters. The problem is, is if you if you've ever looked, I, I don't know who does, but if you've ever looked at an audio waveform, and you play, um, and you play the audio in one one hundredth of a second increments, you'll hear that an individual sound for a letter can go over multiple increments. So, the the neural network looks at things on maybe a tenth, even more, it's more like a hundredth of a second. So it splits up the audio in hundredth of a second windows. And then it says, okay, what letter are they saying 
in this one hundredth of a second window. Mm-hmm. So if I say hello, there might be you know ten or fifteen windows that have the L sound. So it's going to output you know H H E E L L L L O O O O O. And that's not very useful, right? So then what you do is you run it through another neural network, which is called a language model. And that is, well, there, it doesn't have to be a, a neural network, actually. Um, it could just be a, um, a hash table, basically, um, where you're going to look up, uh, you know, what is the statistical similarity between this combination of letters and what I have in my database of all of this uh, text. And then it'll output, well, we think that this, this is what it says. Um, and then so it converts those letters to an actual word. Um, and it does it on a word-by-word word basis. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And the output is letters rather than anything richer, because I don't know how the representation in Mongolian works, but obviously like the the letter E, say, in English, has a ton of different uh, sounds it could possibly be representing. And you kind of sounds like you're kind of losing that information and then trying to, before you squint and try to round it out to grammatical construct or words. That's really right. So this is one of the reasons why these new end-to-end networks, they take so much data because you have to basically get every possible combination of every possible sound in the language and many examples of it with many different types of inflections, pitches, uh, subjects, tones, background noises, it becomes where you need for a modern state-of-the-art system, the benchmark that most people say is you need 10,000 hours of high-quality transcribed audio uh, in various situations to make a state-of-the-art uh, speech recognition system, which is a lot of audio. And how many hours have you got transcribed so far? Or did you before so, the project pivoted? Yeah, so we we had a couple uh, about uh, two hundred hours of audio collected. Um, we our goal was to get a thousand hours, um, and actually, even at a thousand hours, if it was good quality data, we would have been able to make a pretty decent system with maybe eighty percent accuracy or so. Um, I believe um, there are some tricks that we were going to use. So one of the tricks, because <laughs> audio is funny. Um, you know, if you, you know, if you're talking, anyone who talks on a, f- a cell phone knows this. Sometimes you get a good line. Sometimes you get a bad line. Sometimes different background noises and things like that. And all of those things can impact how the neural network understands uh, the speech. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is you can take really clean audio and you can actually copy it and then add a bunch of uh, random noise in the background. So what you can do is you can take a thousand hours of really clean audio and turn it into five thousand hours of mixed up audio, where you you'll, you can even add random background noises. You can change the pitch or the inflection uh, using uh, some audio tools, um, and that's a great sneaky way of of multiplying your data so it's a little bit more robust. Well, and again, that seems very similar to techniques they use in image recognition, where they feed the network mm-hmm. like stretched and squashed versions of all their training data to kind of stretch it out and try to avoid it overfitting on particular features. Yeah, that's exactly right. And with all, even with all of that work, though, it's still amazing because a two-year-old cannot perform a lot of these networks. So, <laughs> so yeah. Well, uh, yes, as anybody who's met a two-year-old uh, can attest, two-year-olds are pretty impressive creatures to begin with. That's true. <laughs> 
so uh, so that is that then the focus of the rest of this project is those implementation techniques. Correct. So what we um, what we would like to do now is to, to determine, well, number one, is the current model that exists, you know, from Google, is it good? Uh, and number two, um, how could we uh, how are media organizations actually interested in using this? Um, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we just need to put throw subtitles in everything. Well, you know, putting my management consulting hat on it, you know, you have to rationalize these choices. It's not free. Uh, you know, what adds business value and those kinds of things. But I'm excited because um, now it actually, me personally, I can start to do things like make a voice assistant at Mongolian using open source software or, you know, control my lights using Mongolian commands um, and those kinds of things, which would be really neat um, because it's just an API. And if you have an API, then you can plug into it and you can start to do cool things. And on a grander scale, you're now moving from the technical question of implementing this thing to the broader societal question of, okay, how do we use this to, you know, to improve Mongolian media and society? Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people, when this first came out, they were, the media was quite excited because, and people, average people were excited. They're like, oh, now we can talk to our phones. And then people start getting really frustrated because it doesn't hear them correctly. And, and, you know, the same thing that everyone else in the rest of the world has to deal with now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. You're late, but don't worry. Your phone still won't understand you. So, <laughs> Speaking of building things for society, uh, there's another project that, uh, again, you posted about on the forums, and I'd really love to hear more about, and that's raw coal. So, yeah, this is a labor of love for me. Um, it's a personal project that I've been working on for years now, actually, and it's a really tough problem. So Ulaanbaatar is, um, it's a lot like um, cities in other developing countries where in the center of the city is where the middle income or above people live. And then the outskirts of the city is where the lower income people live. This is quite flipped um, in a lot of Western countries. But here it's it's like that. Well, it's, it's gone through a process of flipping it's, in the last few decades. Exactly. Even. So here on the outskirts of the city, the city was only designed for half a million people and up to maybe 600,000 or 700,000 uh, with expansion plans. And now there is, uh, you know, triple that or more. So the city basically doesn't have the infrastructure to provide electricity. Well, the electricity is good now, but heating and water are the big issues. So Ulaanbaatar is on a central heating system. And I didn't even know what that was until I moved here. What it is, is in the winter, and Mongolia is a very cold country, um, the, it, it is not unusual for the country to get down to minus 40 Celsius uh, during the winter for many days a year. Um, and that's actually where Celsius and Fahrenheit meet, so it's really cold uh, on the negative side. And uh, it's pretty normal for it to be minus 20 Celsius for, for actually several months at a time. Uh, some, of, some of it's just really when it gets really, really cold, it might even get down to minus 45 or even wow. minus 50 in some, some spots. But that's, that's a little bit less common. Uh, but uh, the real big issue is like snowfall, heavy snowfall, or lack of rain in the summer and those kinds of things. But in the city here, the tricky thing is, is the power plants also produce heating which then gets piped on these giant pipes throughout the city. On the outskirts of the city, there's not, these pipes don't exist. 
they never got laid. Uh, people moved in too fast. They couldn't uh, lay the pipes, and there's not even water pipes in that, those areas. So mm-hmm. in the winter, because it's so cold, they burn. Well, they used to burn uh, up until this year, this year and last year, raw coal. Um, it created what is raw coal? Raw coal is like you dig it out of the ground and you throw it in the stove and you burn it. Um, like raw, raw. Like there's no product. There's no. It, it looks like you know coal miners that you would see in, you know, Kentucky or something like that. I mean, it's just literally hunks of, of, of chunks of coal. I had seen it before in my life, um, but only as like an academic thing, like, oh, this is coal production kind of thing, as opposed to, you know, it doesn't look like what you would get as a fuel. You wouldn't think of it as an actual fuel, but it burns. And I'm guessing that if you take something out of the ground and chuck it in your stove and everybody else in the outer ring of your city of 1.6 million people is doing that breathing is not going to be a lot of fun no and in fact uh in the winter ulaanbaatar is almost always in the top 10 worst polluted cities uh in the world um it's a huge health problem uh it, it i mean it there's been multitude of reports that have researched this it's a major major health crisis it's a major economic problem um it's just a huge huge issue you have to rethink your entire life in the winter in Ulaanbaatar. um you have to make sure your windows are sealed there's no cracks uh you have to have air purifiers if you go outside you have to wear um uh, masks that can filter out um what's called pm 2.5 uh, or particulate matter that is smaller than 2.5 microns in size. Um, this is pollution that's so small, it goes straight through your lungs and into your bloodstream, and it can cause strokes or heart attacks um, and, and many other health problems. Uh, it can cause pregnant women to, uh, to have miscarriages, um, and there are, there are babies that have been born that are born with pneumonia, um, because it's actually the, the, the pollution is so bad that it actually goes straight through uh, the mother and into the child. So it's, it's bad. It's really, really bad. I wanted to see what I could do to better understand the problem, um, because normally when you want to fix a problem, you have to understand the problem. And a lot of money had been spent in Mongolia. I mean, we're talking about tens uh, of millions of dollars that have been spent by international organizations to try and help this. But I don't think, in my opinion, they never targeted um, what needed to be targeted, which was individuals. They were trying to fix the system, but they weren't fixing, you know, knowledge or mindset. And um, I, the the more recent project I built with Anvil was really a a kind of a culmination of everything I've learned in the past several years about pollution in the city. Um, I wanted to show people um, in a very unbiased way um, that, you know, what's the reality um, and what's going on. And the reason why I built this was because in March of 2019, the government decided to ban this coal that was causing so many problems. They replaced it with a new type of fuel that is uh, that is like charcoal briquettes. It's kind of like what you might buy at the store, um, at least you would in the U.S., uh, to do grilling or barbecuing to, you know, if you want to go outside and it's, it's kind of like that. It's actually quite similar. Mm -hmm. And the argument is it's supposed to be 80% less pollution, um, up to, you know, 80% less particulate matter pollution. So I wanted to say, Hey, you know, is it working? 
And so I said, well, what better way to do this than, uh, you know, than like basically an analytics dashboard, essentially. Um, this was the actual, the anvil part of making it was actually pretty easy. Um, it was the data part that was a complete nightmare. Um, alongside the, the, alongside the ban on the raw coal, the Ministry of Environment here in Mongolia also decided to change the way that they measure air pollution. Now, anyone who's ever dealt with data knows that, well, you can't make a change and then change the way you measure it and then measure to see if it got better. That does not make sense. <laughs> so, so what? <laughs> so, oh gosh. So you have a discontinuity in the data right where the treatment began. Pretty much. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, it is, it was different maybe two months, but it was during the a warmer period. So there was almost no pollution. In the summer months in Ulaanbaatar, there's basically no pollution. So what have you been doing? Well, the, the, the work that I did to actually make this happen, uh, that was the mo majority of the work, is taking um, all of the air quality data from back to 2015 up until today, convert all of it to one air quality standard, and then set up um, you know, DAGs, which are directed uh, acyclic graphs, um, to continually scrape and convert the data to load a data warehouse for this dashboard. And it ended up being several gigabytes of data over time. Uh, tell me about this, this data problem. So you have this big effect that's, well, hopefully big effect that's just happened with the banning of the raw coal. And at the same time, they've changed the measurement system. I mean, how do you deal with that? So I dug into, luckily, Mongolia is a dem democratic country. And um, the Ministry of Environment um, released the formula that they used, uh, the updated formula. So I dug into their paper and I dug into the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's um, uh, formula, which is what the one that they were using. Um, and I compared them and basically came up with a strategy and a, and a basically a matching table to convert between one format and the other. And I, I started doing this um, and I said, well, you know, I'll be smart and and use pandas and do all the things that I was supposed to do. And it ended up taking to run through, uh, you know, two million rows of data. It took like three hours or something uh, in Python. And I was like, this is just a mess and this is taking too long. And I have to do this every day. You know, it'll, be, of course, be automated, but that's just too much work. So I actually made an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> with literally just a mapping between the two values. And I said, well, why do I have to recalculate this every time? There's just two linear equations. So why don't I just make a mapping, a one-to-one -one mapping of every possible value for the U.S. standard and every possible value for the Mongolian standard? And then all I have to do is look up the values and then and convert between or like cross between the two. And that actually was computationally much simpler um, and so that takes, you know, less than 30 seconds to do 2 million rows as opposed to three hours. Um, so, but yeah. the crucial thing here is then that because you're converting to a common reference measure, you can convert the before and the after measurement. Exactly. So what I did was I determined that I basically can't go backwards. I can't go from the Mongolian standard to the U.S. standard because the, what they did was instead of taking a one hour average, they started doing a three hour moving average. And for anyone who's familiar with moving averages, moving averages smooths curves and peaks. 
So instead of if you had a really big spike, a three hour average would smooth that spike out. Um, it doesn't actually change the oh, like maybe daily or weekly air quality averages, but it does when you look at it on an hour to hour basis. Um, it makes it look it like understates how bad it gets at the worst. Exactly. So what I did was I converted all of the old data that was on the U.S. standard to the new standard. Uh, so that way I'm comparing everything. So it's all apples to apples. So you can actually now compare the previous before the change to to today. And when did this change take effect? Uh, it happened in March 2019, and then the uh, the equation changed also um, about in April. Um, and so since then, uh, they they made the change in a warm period, which I think from a policy standpoint made a lot of sense. Give people time to prepare. Yes. Exactly. So then we had um, you know September, October, November, December, and January to really look at this. Uh, data critically to see if it actually was working. So when you first published this dashboard uh, on the Anvil forums, it was autumn and you were just heading into winter and waiting to see how it would go. And now we're out the other side. We're recording this in uh, March 2020. So uh, how did it go? So what do you think? It's How well are you doing so far? The 80% estimate was way too optimistic. And I th I figured that when they said it, but it definitely does seem to be helping. It really does depend on the month. Um, some months are worse than others. Uh, January and February tend to be the worst in Ulaanbaatar for air pollution. The rough estimate... It, is that just because they're the worst for temperature? Exactly. Um, the rough estimate is, because, is about 30%, um, maybe down to 40%. If you looked at fall of 2019, it was quite lower than normal. I mean, 40% down on a problem that bad has got to be cause for celebration it is great and i think it's um definitely better um the funny thing about air quality categories is that anything above a certain point is just called extremely hazardous there's not like you know there, there's the break points for these uh categories are they were never designed for like hostile toxic environments they were designed for normal cities um, and Ulaanbaatar in the winter is not, by any definition, normal for air quality. So if you look at the air quality categories, it doesn't look like things improved much. But if you look at the numbers themselves, definitely it's cause for celebration. I think the policy is a good policy and it's a step in the right direction. But there are some conflating factors that are a little bit tricky to deal with. And that is that Air quality or air pollution in Ulaanbaatar is really weather specific. If the wind is blowing strong enough, air quality will be better. So if you just happen to have oh, a... just because the smoke will be blown away. Exactly. If you happen to have a windy month, which then, <laughs> then it's like, oh, congratulations, we solved the air pollution problem. And it's like, I don't think that's actually what happened. Um, so one of the things I also did was I built a, a weather comparer tool to compare days and months to see whether the weather was similar uh, or different uh, from previous years. Ah, oh, so and that's about temperature and it's about wind and all those things that add up to how much people want to burn and how bad it is once they do. Exactly. And it's also things like dew point and humidity, uh, because uh, the amount of humidity in the air does really seem to impact uh, how much air pollution is in the air as well. Like, for example, when it snows, um, the air pollution basically goes away for two days. Um, and the, the idea is that there's so much moisture in the air that it just, uh, all the pollution sticks to it and it falls, it falls to the ground. 
Um, and it's uh, so don't lick the snow, but otherwise you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's uh, so there are some really tricky factors because you know the public uh, when they are trying to understand whether things are working or not, they don't have you know, sophisticated training to understand data and all these factors. They really just need to, under, they just look outside mm -hmm. or they smell outside to see, does it smell like burning coal or not? Um, they don't really have the tools. Um, so I wanted to give journalists, academics, and those kinds the tools so that they could then understand it better. Uh, and I'm happy to say that I, um, I think I did make, helpfully made an impact and, and help people better understand the situation. That is awesome. Do you want to talk a bit about what it is you use Anvil for? Any other big projects that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet that you think we should uh, probably mention? Yeah, there, well, one of the things that I really like doing with Anvil is um, what you would not normally think of as big projects. And I basically just make a bunch of small tools um, that are essentially ERP tools, which are you know enterprise resource planning tools. Um, and we, as a university, we have a lot of data in different systems, and we need to manage it, move it around, control it. Um, and all these services uh, use APIs. So we have like we use a learning management system. We have uh, we are a G Suite um, for education school. Uh, we have an information system for our students. So one of the things I started doing was I made. Um, an information uh, system for our students where they could register for classes, sync up their account information and things like that is a really um, useful thing that saves me countless hours of work um, and it's all automated, which is great. The other thing I'm doing recently is I built um, a machine learning uh, competition site in Anvil. Uh, for a machine learning class I'm teaching this semester. And that's been a really fun experience. And the reason why I like that, and this is basically a machine learning competition like Kaggle, uh, where people, uh, our students can go and they, they upload their predictions for the problem and then it scores the predictions and then gives them the, uh, the output and so they can see live how they're doing compared to their peers. This was a really cool app because Kaggle supports schools and even making um, data science or machine learning competitions for schools. But the reason why I liked it was I, sh I wanted to show the students that you don't have to be a big tech company to make an app that is really easy to use and really useful. And the students are getting a lot out of it. And I really enjoyed making it. I was able to put it together in a day, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and it was great. Yeah, I'm going to link to your description of how you built that in the show notes because it was, yeah, that was really impressive creation for a day. Yeah, it was, it it, it should have taken more, but I really thought it out. Uh, you know, I spent some some time in the shower and those kinds of things to think about how I wanted to build it. And then I just sat down and I put it together. Uh, had you done any web development uh, type work before you started using Anvil? Or is this your first time building web applications at all? Um, that's a good question. I have some experience. Um, I built my first website in like eighth grade with like HTML. This is before there was no CSS. Um, and oh yeah, the blink tag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, so I did. You know, I kind of I had a good basic understanding of how websites worked. Um, I have done CSS work a little bit. I just I've never built a website from scratch. Definitely, um, but I have done modification to sites. I also spent some time. Um, last year, working with Dash uh, from Plotly, 
And that was a nightmare of an experience. <laughs> so it was, I guess, my first foray into uh, modern, I don't even know if you want to call it that, but it was, you know, Dash is this open source tool system where you can make these analytical dashboards and things like that. I thought it was great, but it was way too hard to put together. Um, the disconnect between what you're seeing and what you're coding was so, so big. Um, and it was really hard to get any, just anything working at all. And so um, that's the, really the only experience I had. And for Anvil, it just, it's just so much easier to, you know, visually be able to see what you're doing and then connect it on the back end. And it's just the best of both worlds. When you say connect on the back end, this is presumably about, you know, talking to things like your data warehouse of uh, air quality and things like that, where you can just pull out the standard Python libraries for talking to that Postgres database. Exactly. And it um, also uh, what I did recently was um, I even used the scheduled tasks feature uh, to automate all the data collection. I did have an Airflow server, Apache Airflow server, which is used for running these um, kind of sophisticated DAGs, which uh, directed acyclic graphs of Python code. Um, and I basically was able to copy those over from Airflow and get them working in Anvil in less than three hours. And it was pretty, pretty easy to use. And now that entire app is self-contained except for the database, which is really great. I mean, that's what we aim for. Uh... There's a lot of problems in this world for which you can find trendy solutions that involve complicated <laughs> DAGs and specialized data processing pipelines that actually, if you can just write a Python script and then make that run when you push a button or make it run every morning at 3 a.m., actually that will solve your problem. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times people, you know, they try and reinvent the wheel or they try and, you know, make a spaceship when a wheel will do fine. <laughs> All right. Do you want to tell me about that um, that Mongolian stock market thing? You killed it. Sure. So I killed, I killed this app, and the app still exists. But I actually killed the backend database and and all that stuff. I just I exported all the flat files because because um, you're a pack rat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I realized that the stock exchange in Mongolia is not actually a very good investment opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so well, as I was doing this research, I was like, okay, so I'm doing this financial analysis and I'm looking at these financial ratios and I'm looking at the stock thing. And I was even going to build a portfolio optimization tool. And then I realized it's like none of these things anyone should buy and they're, they're not good. And so I just like, okay, why would anyone want to use or pay for this app for you know, something that's just not going to make them money. And so I just said, okay, it could be is... replaced by a static page saying, don't invest in Mongolia. <laughs> Have you tried the S&P 500? Exactly. And so I said, you know, maybe one day it'll get there. Um, and I think it, it has, uh, opt, you know, I have optimism for it in the future, but for now, I think it's just not a good option. Uh, so I killed it and I said, I'm not going to waste time or, or space or, or brain cells on it. Like what companies are in Mongolia? Like what's listed on the Mongolian um, exchange? Like, you know, Three mining conglomerates and two hundred fam family farms. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the biggest companies are basically um, actually the biggest companies are not even publicly listed. They're all privately owned. Um, but there are some like there's some hotels. Oh, that says doesn't say good things about. The no, th there are some hotels on the stock exchange. Uh, there's some like meat packers that are on the stock exchange. 
Um, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, if your, if your industry is primary. Yeah, cashmere companies. Um, there's a few new fintech startups that have, that were publicly listed, uh, but the way that they listed, they listed um, to where only the local subsidiary um, is listed on the stock exchange, and then they made a parent holding company that then launched products in other countries. So you didn't get a piece of the pie for the whole company. You only got a piece of pie of the local product, uh, which has a, a finite market size. It's only 3 million people. So again, it's not a good long-term growth investment, right? It's only going to be able to make so much money and it's going to stop. And that's pretty much they, they within two years, they basically hit saturation point and now they're just stagnant. And they're launching other products in other countries, but of course, the stock that you buy in Mongolia is not for those products. It's only for the one in Mongolia. So are these Mongolian companies or are they like local instances of global fintech companies? Yeah, pretty much on the Mongolian stock exchange, they're almost all Mongolian companies. Just this year, they're talking about allowing dual listing of foreign companies. So that's another thing that really causes a problem here is that there's not um, the regulatory framework is really strict. They don't want to allow too much freedom. You can't even do options. Um, like you can't uh, short sell or futures or anything like that. Those don't exist. You can buy and sell a stock. Um, and it's kind of, um, wow. it's kind of sad. <laughs> so, so yeah. But on the other hand, the fact that there are Mongolian fintech firms that are going on to establish international vehicles to go sell things abroad is actually like that's really exciting and cause for optimism yeah i mean the, the mongolian um tech scene is interesting here because there's a lot of mongolians who've gone abroad uh like the guy who started this he used to work at dell as a product manager for the emc suite of products that they have and um and then there's a, another guy who worked at Microsoft that co-founded the, the company with him. And I mean, there, there's people who... So is this this one big fintech you're thinking yeah, of? Yeah, which is called um, And Global, and they made Lindemann. But they um, they are basically Western-educated, really smart people who came back to Mongolia and they wanted to make a company. And there's a lot of those people here um, because, I don't know, for whatever reason, there's quite a few... Um, you know, those engineers and those kinds of people who come back and um, they end up doing pretty well. You know, some some succeed, some fail, but it's 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 getting the 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 cycle and the market going. Yeah, the fact that some succeed is, is actually kind of the important thing. I mean, you know, anyone who watches this space has seen loads of places try to become startup hubs and, you know, there being lots of startups is a thing you can, you know, you can kind of create by fiat i don't know if you saw an article that did around like last week um measuring like university biotech spin outs so, you know a whole some whole bunches of universities turn out to be basically own you know doing nominal spin outs that never register an office address of outside the university um intellectual property office you know that clearly aren't doing anything serious and you know that's not going to fuel a real a real cluster but if there are people who are doing this and some of them are succeeding then you've got the ingredients for something. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what's happening. Um, but it's going to take time for people to figure out what actually works and what doesn't. Um, the good thing in Mongolia is people really focus on practical things. They don't try and focus on, you know, new whiz-bang technology, which is quite, you know, unproven, right? Uh, which is which is tricky. So, But I think that's a factor of most of these people don't have the resources to, to to implement these new technologies, so they just try and you know make something creative with what they've got. 
Like, honestly, uh, this is, again, something that Anvil is built around believing at our core, that actually we don't need a new round of really fancy or extra complicated new technologies to do a lot of the things that really need doing. You know, this software is eating the world thing. Most of that eating does not require you know, a, a a massive tool belt of all new big data stuff. It requires like application of a Python script. You know, the average nibble in the process of software eating the world is like, you know, it's a web app whose logic is basically a three line for loop in Python or, you know, maybe a hundred line Python script and, you know, <laughs> enabling people to deliver the simple things is like what we're all about. So I entirely endorse any set of constraints, deliberate or accidental, that reminds people that they don't need to spend their effort on the whiz-bang stuff. They need to spend their effort on doing something useful because the simple tech is just fine. Yeah, I 1,000% agree with that. It's very, very true. And um, I wish, you know, there's a lot of memes going around the internet saying, you know, machine learning is just a bunch of uh, if loops change my mind. And <laughs> yep. and uh, you can really make it simpler than that. And it even works lots of times. And uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. That's fine. I mean, Anvil's whole, our whole shtick is putting an interface on the web someone can interact with should be in that bucket of really simple technologies. And the fact that it isn't there yet, like that's our justification for building all sorts of fun whiz-bang stuff. And mm -hmm. oh, believe me, it is fun writing a Python to JavaScript compiler. Don't get me wrong. That's exactly the kind of company you'd expect two computer science PhDs to start. But uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but ultimately, like the point is that you should not need that level of expertise in order to put a button on a screen that you know runs some Python when it gets clicked. Yeah, absolutely. And we, um, uh, I, I really like y'all's uh, tutorials on. Hey, look, we made these Y Combinator apps in two hours. <laughs> and, <laughs> awesome. and I was like, this is the most is so tongue in cheek and like you know, it's <laughs> really funny. <laughs> well, like. Because most of this, the point is, I mean, I don't even think that's a knock-on Y Combinator. Because, like, the point is that a lot of those applications, you know, the smarts were not in making it possible to pay for, say, parking from your, from your mobile phone. The smarts are in, like, the process of, you know, the long, slow boring of hardboards of persuading a particular city or county or regional municipal government to move to digital parking yeah yeah and like that is where you should be spending your time like learning your 15th web framework this year and you know deciding what else should be in your webpack comp so that you can make a shiny thing for actually buying that parking should not be what you spend most of your time on if you're doing that yep yeah that's that's a great point and that's that's very refreshing to hear um and it's it's one of those things where ah you know it, we'll let the people who who want to spend too much time do that and then you know we can focus on executing <laughs> so yeah yep obviously we've talked all about tech but you you know uh mongolia is a business mm -hmm. school uh what do the people who you know what do your students want to do like are they looking to start companies are they looking to 
go abroad and climb the ranks in big global companies? Are they looking to like climb the ranks within Mongolian companies? You know, what what, what does ambition look like mm-hmm. in Ulaanbaatar? So the for a lot of our students, they um, uh, most of them, I would say, they want to go work for a company here in Mongolia, uh, but they almost always go work for international companies that have offices here. Um, so they they tend to be uh-huh. uh, financial firms that do lending to um, mining companies, or they could be uh, you know big cashmere producers or or whatever. And that's a big ambition here. Um, there are a small group of people who want to make their own companies, but we, you know, my wife and I are, are somewhat entrepreneurial as well. I mean, we started the school, it's a business school and we have <laughs> so, yeah, like, difficult for you to say, Oh no, yeah. don't do so that. So we, we say, you know, Hey, if you want to do it, that's great, but you have to realize how hard it is and how difficult it can be. And you have to be prepared for failure and pivots and, and all those things. And um, a lot of them, I would say like the emotional, uh, the EQ level here is not where it should be for entrepreneurism. Uh, uh, and it's just, it's just not because it's tough, you know, and um, the, the culture does not embrace that as much failure. Uh, you know, like, I mean, California, it's like a joke, right? It's like, oh, you failed. Here's a million dollars. And it's like, <laughs> so, um, but, but, you know, here it could be better. And I think, um, uh, but for my data science students, I'm really uh, hopeful uh, because they are unique. Um, every one of them gets a job offer before they graduate. It's like really crazy right now. All the companies are like fighting over them and they're getting like double managers salaries and stuff like that. Their first year out of college, they end up doing like SQL lookups and running Python scripts. And they're like, this is stupid. And like, <laughs> This is what I'm pointing out. Like, I- <laughs> The sad news is that, like, being able to write SQL queries and run a Python script on the results, like, is what's going to generate eighty percent or more of the business value that is ever generated from data. Absolutely, and that's why like we were saying earlier, <laughs> the basic stuff is what matters. Exactly, and I think for um, one of my students who he was my first data science graduate, he got a job at a um, uh, a big mortgage uh, company here, and he was basically doing that. And he thought he was like, oh, this is not what I want to do. I want to do machine learning and really cool stuff. And so he started working at this quote unquote data science machine learning company here. And then he started doing a bunch of even more useless things. And he's like, yeah, I regret quitting. And I, w- I wish I could have stayed and um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I have taken that into my head. And so what I do now is when I give them projects I give them the dirtiest, realest data I can find, <laughs> and they hate me for it, but I'm hoping they will appreciate it long term because they'll actually realize what it actually means to do these projects. Yeah, I, gosh, I, I suppose anybody who's learned data science on like pre-cleaned, pristine data sets is going to have a really nasty shock when they encounter the real world. Oh, Kaggle is like so f- infuriating for me, and I refused to participate <laughs> in those competitions. And I use the data sets feature, and I and I work with some Kaggle masters on there with doing some data stuff, but I do not participate in those competitions. They're the most unrealistic, ridiculous things ever. And it's just, I don't know, it, that, that's very frustrating to me. <laughs> I imagine like they're probably realistic if you are on like the Netflix data team and you have this remarkably pure feed straight into, you know, global watch data for Netflix and 
uh, you have if if the data is wrong, then you have an engineering team you can get on the phone and go, "Oi, fix it." Uh, you know, maybe it's realistic for them. Yeah, and then you know that that's that's very true. I think, and for my students, I say, you know, this is this is Mongolia. If you find another data scientist you're working with on the same team, that's like unheard of. I mean, there's <laughs> you know, you, there's like 20 data scientists in the whole country, maybe. And a lot of those, they don't even know. Um, there, some of them are more academic data scientists. You know, they're better at the at uh, you know statistical design or, and things like that. Not a lot of them use R. They don't use Python. So when it comes to doing anything practical, they basically hit a wall. Um, and and it's it's like so. And I'm like, you know, you guys are gonna be on your own basically. You gotta be. You gotta figure out how to make things happen by yourself. And you know, these competitions are designed for. You know, these, and then they all—they're all deep learning now. They're all deep learning competitions, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, it drives me crazy. And I'm like, you know, if you are a big company in the U.S., that makes sense. But for eighty percent of the enterprises, like, even for most big companies in the U.S., like most of the again, most of the value generation, even in these huge companies, probably comes from SQL queries and running Python scripts yep. on it. The only difference is that Google has a huge engineering team that already does all of that stuff, and so they have the machine learning engineers for the really tricky stuff. Exactly, and and or it's as simple as running like linear regression, and it's like, okay, well, I could have done that, and in the yeah. database these days, you can just do that. So, like, <laughs> why do you even need all this extra stuff? And uh, yeah, so it's they. I, I'm really trying to put put it in their heads that this is different than what you think it is. It's different than what you see on TV or YouTube or or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, so it's it's a long term battle, but it's it's good. My goodness, university lecturer actually preparing people for the real world. Stop the presses. So the, f- the funny story with that, actually, with our uh, Laterno in, in Texas, they are a pretty old school. I mean, they are pretty entrenched. They're pretty much what you would expect from a U.S. university. And I went over there and we were talking about dual creating our data science programs to, to, to coincide with each other. And I could not get through their heads how to teach kids for the real world. And I'm like, none of you have done this in the real world. <laughs> I didn't say that because that's pretty insulting, but they, you know, they, they said, I don't even know how this works. And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, you are a math professor. You're great at teaching math. You don't know how businesses use math, though. And, you know, if I go to the computer science guy, he's going to say, well, I know how to make desktop software or even web software, but I don't know how to integrate math with my software. And and it's like, okay, well, that's a good point. And then if you go over to the business people, it's like, okay, can the business people talk to the computer science people to communicate what they need and can they all work together? And, and it's like, no, they don't know how to talk to each other. And, and I said, well, you know, we have to make this interdisciplinary. You can't say, oh, this is a math class. This is a computer science class. This is a business class. You need to be doing it all together and focus on task-oriented classes as opposed to subject-oriented classes. So that's the way I set up the minor here. I'm really lucky because um, it's a minor. It's not a major, mm-hmm. which means that the government doesn't care. So what is all of your school or just specifically you're talking about data science? Just specifically data science. So they're actually, their degree is in business mm-hmm. administration, but then they get a minor in data science. And mm-hmm. the reason why I like that is because with a minor, I can focus on saying, hey, okay, you're not going to take object-oriented programming 101. Okay, that like that's... That's stupid. Okay, where it's really useful if you want to make software that's like production grade. But you're a data scientist; you're going to be hacking stuff together. And Python is not the most conducive uh, for you know 
learning, you know, you're going to spend a year learning just basics before you get to anything useful. So let's not do that. So instead, we're going to jump right in. Uh, they started, you know, like their very first class their freshman year for data science is like cleaning data sets and like uh, running reports and stuff. Um, and they're like, this is really hard. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then now they're sophomores and they're doing machine learning. And then, uh, then next year they're going to do data visualization, advanced data visualization, and then they're going to learn deep learning if they want to and big data stuff. Um, but I wanted to throw as much stuff in the beginning as possible of real stuff. So and it's, ta it's task oriented classes. So it's like, you know, Python for data science. It's not data science one, data science two, data science three. It's like, okay, this is, this is a Python class. This is a data visualization class. This is a machine learning class. This is a, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. So it's a little unusual, I think. And universities, they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. But you said the good thing about it is that because it's a minor, the government doesn't care. Yeah. So they don't have the same restrictions. Um, they don't have for the major, they have a certain number of hours you have to teach based on, you know, for certain concept or, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it? Um, core uh, concepts uh, that you have to teach and like, you know, oh, you have to have this many hours of, of finance or whatever, whatever, whatever. But for a minor, they don't have the same, like there's no degree of data science as a major, like the government doesn't recognize it. And in fact, <laughs> in the US, there's many universities that have to, if they wanna add a new major, it takes like two years sometimes or three years of a process um, to get their accrediting body to agree to it. And so it's, they're very slow moving and it's very difficult. By the time they get approved, the whole thing's going to change. So it's going to be different. Yeah. So to wrap up, the two questions I always ask, what's something surprising you've learned in this journey when, when building things or when measuring things or when doing data science, what surprised you? I think the thing that surprised me was that the biggest thing is how data scientists spend their time. Um, a lot of people on the outside looking in at data science, they look at this as something where you're, you know, like, you know, minority report, you're throwing data around, you're running these really cool models. And, and it's not like that. It's more like, you know, oh, I just spent 12 hours beating my head against this code trying to get the stupid columns to reformat the right way in my pipeline. And then I only improved my accuracy by 2%. Um, and then, and that's really the biggest thing for me. I'm interested that I ask you for your biggest surprise. And the answer isn't anything about moving to a very different country uh, isn't about setting up a university <laughs> from scratch. It's about getting the columns to come out right in your pandas processing. I think a lot of people can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So final question then. In one sentence, why Anvil? For me, Anvil is great because with a team of just one or two people, I can do the same work in the same time as a team of four or five people. All right, Robert Ritz, director of Letty Mongolia, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Stories from the Workshop. I've been Meredith Luff. I've been talking to Robert Ritz. And if you want to learn more about what we've been talking about, read the show notes or subscribe, you can find us at anvil.works podcast. This episode was edited by Baz Richardson. The music is by Signal Smith. And I'll be back next month 
with more stories from the workshop. See you next time.